program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up, with host Carol Oglesby. This program explores the historical roots that women's sport has taken in the past half century, from light competition to collegiate, professional, and Olympic sports today. Now, here is your host, Carol Oglesby. Welcome, welcome to our show number four in the Women in Sport, Long Road Up series. We're all approaching the Olympic Games time in sports world, unless you're playing in a major professional team sport such as American football, soccer, basketball, baseball, or perhaps professional golf or tennis. The O Games are it, the pinnacle of competition, and they only come around every four years. If your sport is not on the Olympic program, your shot at patriotic greatness evaporates. Our guests are two women from sports and events that appear to be on the Olympic program, but in actuality are not. We're going to get to that story, but first I want you to meet these two champions in sport and life, Pam Boatler and Robin Farina. Uh, Pam and Robin, let's start with you and just a few bio points. Could you tell us, please, where you're from, what you do uh, for a living, in quotes, and what you're engaged in this summer? Uh, Pam, will you go first? Sure. Um, I am president of Women Can International, which is a virtual organization of men, like-minded men and women seeking to push for inclusion of and equality for women in Olympic canoeing and existing Olympic sports. And I, I work full-time for the federal government, and I'm still paddling, but I'm not in sprint canoe right now, but paddling in other sports disciplines. Robin, how about you? Yes, I am president of the Women's Cycling Association. Um, it is an organization that we uh, we formed to help grow equality in, in professional women's cycling. Um, a couple years ago, it, it, in 2013, several things were happening. So we uh, we really decided to take a leap forward and, and kind of lead the charge in cycling. And so I, I run that group. I also have a a endurance uh, coaching company that I that I run. Um, it, I coach cyclists of all levels, and then I also am a team director for a professional women's team. Very good, very good. No, uh, no, no uh, empty spots in your lives, I can tell. Uh, let, let's go back uh, to your beginnings. I, I'd like to ask the question of, of each of you, how, how did you get involved first in sport generally? Uh, you know, how old were you, that kind of thing, and then in your own sport? So who were the people that encouraged you? That's kind of what I'm wanting to look at here. So, um, Robin, how about you going first on this one? Sure. I remember getting into sports as early as five years old. I lived in a community, um, a suburb of Nashville, Tennessee, and I remember being the only girl playing on an all-boys soccer league for the first five years. So I was was always a competitor as, as early as I can remember, and I just enjoyed pushing myself to the limits. I played all kinds of sports. I consider myself a, you know, a long, 
lifetime athlete. I played soccer, tennis, volleyball, basketball, you name it. I was always playing a sport. And, you know, I didn't find cycling until my early 20s after an injury sidelined me from a lot of traditional team sports. And uh, I, w- I went to the University of Tennessee. I got a bigger degree in sports management. I worked for the Atlanta Braves for a year out of college and then a, a national sports council. So my life, pretty much as long as I can remember, has always been about about sports. And so, I, I've, you know, I didn't see how that was going to change any moving forward. So my parents, I would say, were probably, you know, the backbone of my support group. Even at, at an early age, they always encouraged me to compete. They were all very supportive. They always went to all my competitions. And so, you know, I, I had a, a, I came from a family that never told me no when it came to going after um, competition or going after something that I wanted to try. So I'm very grateful to them, even to the day. Now at 38, just freshly retiring from a professional cycling career of 15 years, that I had that support. Good. That's how wonderful. Yeah, never say no about sports. That's fantastic. Um, uh, Pam, how about you? How was your start? Sure. Um, well, it's, it's similar and, and a bit different than Robin. Um, I was involved in sports since since I can remember. You know, definitely grade school and recess was my favorite class. So, um, but I, I did just start playing basketball just in a neighborhood dirt court, and I, I was involved in boys and girls club basketball and soccer, probably starting in about fourth grade, and that was the first organized sports that I did, and then I played basketball and ran cross-country and track through high school and college, but I didn't start canoe sport, paddle sports until after college, and I didn't start sprint canoe until 2000 after doing a, a few years of sprint kayak, so it was quite a bit later that I was exposed to paddle sports, um, but I've been basically a, an, an athlete, so to speak, my whole life. It's really important it, for many of the people that have been on this show already, a uh, very important opportunity, who, who has even the littlest bit of opportunity, and how supportive it seems like parents have been uh, for, for girls. There's got to be somebody that's really in their corner. I know that both of you have had many, many victories and career high points in your sport, but I'm wondering if you could describe one or two of your Best ever moments. Uh, Pam, why don't you keep going on this? Best ever moments. Wow, it's, it's, it's really hard to choose a, a best ever moment, but I'd have to say that in 2010, which was my final year competing in sprint canoe, I was only doing the doubles canoe event last that year, and my partner and I were competing at the Pan American Championships in Mexico City at the Olympic course. And we had um, gone through our, our two events. We were on our final event in the 200 meters. And, um, and we, had, we hadn't quite had our perfect race yet at, at all during the season, nor in that, in that regatta. And we, we finished third, where we thought, in the, in the 200-meter final, which was the last event of the day. And um, everybody had packed up their boats, and we were ready to leave the course. It was 5 o'clock, and we discovered that there was a protest on the race um, from Brazil, who finished fourth, and they won their protest. We had to unpack everything, and um, we kind of had all had a choice to either be really, really angry or maybe grateful for another opportunity and a second chance to have that final perfect race. So 
we chose the latter. We said to have some gratitude, and we paddled ourselves back to the starting line. And um, I have to say that that race was finally our absolute perfect race. And I actually thought we finished fourth um, when we crossed the finish line. And in, in that moment, you know, it didn't really matter because we had a perfect race, but we found out from our coach that we actually finished third. So, so we, we were able to finish that regatta with three bronze medals, which was actually pretty fun for two women. You know, I was 42 and she was 32, so we were old enough to be the parents of many of the athletes on the course. So that was probably the highlight of my career, and it was a great capstone to end my career on that note. How great. That's great. I think the least they could have done if they were going to redo the race was to tow you back to the starting line. It's too bad you had to <laughs> paddle your way back to the starting line. Yeah, um, that's hard. <laughs> Robin, how about you? That's, a, that's going to be a hard one to beat for a best ever moment, but I bet you can come right up there with it. Yeah, that, that is actually pretty hard to beat. But, you know, I look back at a, a pretty long cycling career, you know, I started in my early 20s, and, and I just now finished up at 38. And back in 2011, um, I thought I was going to actually retire in the winter of 2010. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity for the professional teams out there. Sponsorships were lacking. And so I kind of just thought I was going to go into triathlon at that point. But So I put in a pretty good winter of training, but not the traditional training that cycling requires. So middle of that year, I got an opportunity. A team formed a little late in the game. It was kind of like the bad news bears. <laughs> but we did have some good support. And, you know, through a lot of hard work and determination and, and great teamwork, in 2011, I won the National Road Race Championship, which is, you know, for uh, in cycling, it's one of the, the more prestigious um, races that you can win for your country. And so through that win... And I, it's funny because to the day, I still don't remember everything that happened in that race. In fact, I can't even remember a lot of it. I just remember crossing the finish line and in such a maybe even disbelief that I'd won. But I didn't even know what that win was going to do for my career down the road. And so now that I'm retired, I look back at that and, and know, you know, I got to go to the Pan Am Games for that. I got to go to the World Championships in 2011 in Denmark. And so through that opportunity and through that win, I really that was really what propelled me into the advocacy side of things. And so it gave me a voice. And, and now I look back at it and I, it's my, it's the best win that I ever could have, could have won because it, it gave me confidence and it gave me a voice to, to be able to speak about the things that I, that I care mo- really deeply about in our sport. So that to me is, is the most important win because it, it was a high profile win and it, it took me from you know, being a good writer to a great writer and being respected. That is a wonderful pair of stories. Um, you know, you mentioned, Robin, the word confidence. I wonder if each of you could uh, just take a couple of minutes and, and think about what would be some qualities that you think you developed in yourself that are important life qualities that came uh, very strongly from your sports career. Robin, why don't you keep going on this? Anything from sports that really um, brought you something for your life skills? Absolutely. I mean, I, as long as I can remember, I look at, at, you know, cycling is a team sport and the things that you have to do to be successful in a team, it's communication. It's, uh, it's learning to, to work around people's you know, personalities and, and just like how to come together and really believe in each other. And for me, like that's what, that's what sport is about. It's, it's about, you know, figuring out your differences, but respecting each other. And, and I think that works in life and, and everything we do. And so 
I'm really grateful for the opportunity to get to, to have sport in my life. And I look back at it and it's, it's, you know, it's given me confidence. It's given me a work ethic that I, you know, I, I know that I can succeed in mostly anything I put my, my mind to. And so, you know, I, and I, I'm a, a coach of several cyclists and a lot of young, young riders. And so it's, it's so fun for me to kind of help walk them through what, what sport will do for them and how it will translate into later on in life when you're done with your sport. Um, just the ability to really work with other people and, and be gracious about winning and, and, and losing and learning from those mistakes. So to me, it's, it's just, uh, it's been so many things that I've, I've gotten from not only cycling, but all the sports that I've played. And, you know, I take that with me every day, you know, the work ethic that I, that I get up with in the morning and, you know, what keeps us going. Hey, Pam, how about you? What, what would you say about that? Life skills. Yeah, Rob threw out a lot of really key words there, and um, you know, trust, respect, teamwork, um, winning and losing. And um, I have to say that while my career has been both as an individual, but also in team sports, and I'm I'm doing still doing that now. Uh, I have to say that just the, in addition to what she said, the process that you go through and setting goals and and identifying everything that you need to do day in and day out to achieve your goals, I think a, a confidence for me has come with really fine-tuning, really getting in touch with who I am um, and getting in touch with my process. And that's sort of the analogy is you don't set out to build a wall of bricks. So you, you, lay, you lay a brick as perfectly as a brick can be laid and so you have a wall. And that's the same thing with your process, you know, how you take care of yourself, the type of people you surround yourself with, your nutrition, your mind training, your, um, the environment within which you live and train, and all of that builds up over time. And just working with your teammates and trusting each other and building those relationships and supporting each other, I think I've probably learned more in congratulating my, my competitors on their wins, you know, you, you it's it's such an amazing thing not to feel jealousy, but rather to feel like, wow, that was really awesome and that you know, we're all better because each of us are trying to raise the bar. And when somebody else raises the bar, when I raise the bar, we're all getting better. And that's really kind of what anybody wants to do as an athlete is just to be your best every day and be better than you were yesterday. Thank you. Those are terrific, terrific thoughts. Um, I'm wondering one last question before we go into a break period. Um, wondering if you think it was an early or a late awareness that you were facing some obstacles or being held back because of gender. Um, Catherine Switzer was just uh, on our program last week, and she said she was actually running the marathon, the Boston Marathon, when it dawned on her that all these things that had happened that were um, as obstacles were not accidental, that, that it was a part of a gender pattern. And I'm wondering if it, for you, if it was an early or a late awareness, I, I would say for Catherine, it was late. So was it early, right on, uh, right, right early on, or, or something more late? Uh, Pam, Pam, why don't you go with that one? For me, it was, it was very early on. I, I didn't really know that women were excluded from canoeing in the Olympics. And never, I'm at a canoe club that actually helped establish canoe kayak on the Olympic program in 1924. So there are a lot of male canoeists at our club, with many people on the Olympic teams. But it wasn't until, so it's it, it sort of like, in the days where women didn't play football, you just didn't make the connection that, well, why don't, why don't women play football? But there was a woman named Sheila Piper that showed up at our club 
from Canada in 1998, and she was helping with the, she was spearheading the campaign for the Toronto bid against Beijing. And as part of Toronto's bid, they were going to include women's canoe events. And I didn't even know it was an issue, but I've never seen a woman high kneeling in a canoe. It was actually the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And when she talked about the issues, and then when I finally realized that, wait, women can't even race at the national championships in canoe, it didn't register with me because I raced in kayaks, but it just never never resonated with me and nor a lot of other people that women should also be in those canoe events. So this was at a time in, in 1999, I started dabbling with it at my club. My club actually offered a women's canoe race for the first time. We were the first club in the U.S. to offer it. And, um, and, I, and I, I did that race. And then later that year, I learned that USA Canoe Kayak had changed its bylaws. They actually had to change the bylaws to allow women to race at the national championships in 2000 against the men. So that was the beginning where I, you know, I wanted, of course, wanted to be a part of making history. And, um, and I ended up being like the only <laughs> person in the races and my Canadian friend, Heather McNee, who was working with Sheila Kuiper, she raced with me in the doubles canoe event in the intermediate class, and that's that's where we won gold. But um, but it, it was immediate where it just it it just didn't resonate with me that women didn't couldn't compete and and were not allowed to compete, and that actually bylaws had to be changed, not just in our country but in other countries. As so it was well. pretty immediate. Okay, Robin, hang on. We're going to take a short break now, but we'll get your story uh, right as we come back. We're going to take this break, and when we come back, we'll finish up on uh, some of these early awarenesses about gender discrimination and some of the strategy struggles that are happening in canoe and cycling today. So um, stay with us and be back on Women in Sport, The Long Road Up. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. We go through all kinds of challenges in life. How we deal with them is a different story. If we carry them on our shoulders, we can experience health problems, relationship issues, and other negative aspects these challenges can pose. Jeanette Abney's Precious Predicaments is here to help you pick up and sort out the pieces through education and encouragement. You don't have to live in fear and pain. Let's find solutions together. Precious Predicaments is heard live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Succeed. 
are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Robin Farina and Pam Boltler about the long road up for women's canoe and road race cycling. Um, I had asked a question about whether uh, perception of gender discrimination was an early or a late awareness for the two of you. And Robin, we didn't hear from you on that one yet. What, what do you think? Were you a youngster or were you, um, you know, getting up there in the teens and beyond before you began to put, it, put together these, uh, the ideas about discrimination? Yeah, that's a great question because I, I had to think for the, on that for a little while, and I really it, I narrowed it down to when I started working in sports. I think all through all growing up, I felt like I had the same opportunity. I you know there were plenty of, of teams that I could play on in high school. I felt like I was treated fairly and eat and very. There's a lot of equality, and even in college. But then once I got out of college and I started working for the Braves, and then. And then moving on to the National Sports Council, I was one of one female and nine males who worked for the Sports Council. And our goal was to bring economic development to Nashville, Tennessee through sporting events. And that's when I think I first was kind of slapped in the face on how, what is my upward trajectory in sport? I looked around and all the major teams, the, the, the Titans, the, the, the Predators, like a hockey team, every, every, all of these sports were ran by males. Um, there were no females. There were no females in leadership roles. Um, I remember working for the sports council, and there being one woman on the executive board for the sports council that actually the executive board made the decision on what sports sporting events we were going to bring to Nashville, how we were going to market, what we were going to do. And to me, I felt like that was super odd. And so I did work for the sports council for the next few years. But then I felt like I felt like I wasn't going anywhere. That I was stuck in a marketing position, um, which was great, but. As I got into my mid-20s and then introduced to cycling and started competing again, I, I was so, I guess, enamored with how to make it as a professional that I kind of didn't really think about the inequalities that were happening in cycling until later on in my sport. Once I made it, once I started, you know, having, getting, getting the opportunity to race full-time, and, and, but even through my career, I always had to juggle several jobs just to be able to, to participate and to play you know, in my sport. So as I started digging a little deeper in my early 30s and starting to figure out that the pay, the salaries for men and women cyclists were, were hugely different, um, that, was, that, was, that became kind of a, a slap in the face to me and, and kind of a sticking point that I was like, why is, why is this? And then ultimately it was because the sponsorship dollars were much greater on the men's side because men's cycling was getting TV time. And then I was being asked questions, well, why don't the women get to compete in the Tour de France? The Tour de France is the, is the ultimate cycling race for all cyclists. And, you know, it's, in Europe, it's one of the biggest events ever held in, in sport. And so women weren't getting the opportunity to race the Tour de France as long as I can remember. I think the last time they had a women's Tour de France was in the early 80s. And then all of a sudden, in the late 80s, it was gone. And so that opportunity not not having the opportunity to race the Tour de France and, and be on TV for 21 days in July was a huge discrepancy for me. And so as I, as I got, as I, as I said earlier, you know, that national championship win that I had, 
provided me the voice and the confidence to stand up and say, you know, why are these things happening? We had to address to our governing bodies that this was not right, and what were we going to do about it? And so I would say it was just a couple years ago where I actually, I, I recognized it early, but wasn't in a position to do anything about it until until I could help kind of gain our gain the troops, you know, get the, get the forces and, and have more people with say actually do something about it. So it was, you know, I did recognize it in my early 20s, but just didn't feel like I could do anything about it. And now I feel like I can do everything about it. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I realized it. But it, it was a process. Yes, yes. Well, the doing something about it, uh, that's a great definition for advocacy. I think the two of you are really in an interesting um, situation to comment about something because you are both serious and, and elite competitors. And um, I'm wondering if you feel like there was a hard boundary when you crossed from being in competition to being an advocate or if this was sort of a loose boundary where you floated back and forth between being competing, a competitor, or into advocacy? And did one thing impact either positively or negatively on the other, the competitor versus the advocate role? Um, uh, this is a tough question, but uh, Pam, I, you're up for it. Could you could you start in on that one? H- how did you negotiate that boundary between the competitor and the advocate? Well, in the beginning, um, in 2000, 2001, um, and actually through 2011, I was working very well and was very tight with USA Canoe Kayak, my national federation, and even the International Canoe Federation had very good relationships. But um, as Robin um, alluded to, that these are mostly male-run organizations, and um, USA Canoe Kayak was actually very supportive about a lot of stuff. And um, we had some women in leadership in the early days. But the, the tide turned. As long as you're going with the flow and sort of wait, you know, you're advocating, you're lobbying, I'm doing my thing out in the world, but you don't want to make anybody angry. And we made people angry in 2011, and um, that was when we decided that enough was enough and that we needed, there was a London um, exhibition event, I think it was the test event that the Olympics runs in the host city every year before the Olympics. And we wanted these women's canoe events, that's a slalom course in London. And we wanted women, we didn't want events, we just wanted women to be forerunners. And it had already been asked for over the years and we were always told no, but just Forerunners. They're not competing. They're just running down the course for a minute each, maybe three people, so maybe three minutes out of a whole day. And that's all we were asking for, but it was just a demonstration that women can <laughs> do. So we ended up, um, I think we connected with you and some other people. You, you, you opened your Rolodex, and we got connected with some attorneys in London, and that, that was the first time that we actually got legal assistance and all we did was we, we had Garden Court Chambers write a letter to the London Organizing Committee asking for these women um, in these UK athletes who train on that course to be forerunners. And we invoked the Olympic Charter that the practice of sport is human rights and the London Organizing Committee slogan that, you know, this is the games for all. And that, that letter was when the tide turned and that's when I started getting angry emails actually in all caps 
um, Simon Pope, the next the Secretary General of the International Canoe Federation. That was actually kind of fun to get those emails. Not really at the time, um, but but as long as you're as long as you're dancing with them, you're okay. But once you start, the legal action is always a, a last resort, and you know that. And but that's when the tide turned, and I, I knew that there was no going back at that point. And then the following year, in 2012, that's when we were able to get Sam Rippington, the UK athlete to agree to be the face of a, a lawsuit um, against the London Organizing Committee that held them accountable to the Equality Act of 2010. That's another story. But um, but going the legal route was where you are a hated person, and that, that was the start of getting blocked from the ICF Facebook page and all that good stuff. So. <laughs> And and yes, yeah, so you had you had to cross a boundary there, and maybe it it sort of goes without saying, but let me just comment about something we'll get back to a little bit later. Uh, the women could be um, in the kayak events in the Olympic program, but there are no women canoe events in the Olympic program. So we'll get back to that, though. Um, Robin, what, what about you, that uh, boundary between the competitor and the advocate? Uh, any issues going back and forth, or was it not oh, possible? Yeah. No, in, in 2012, the fall of 2012, after the season was over, um, I committed to forming women, the Women's Cycling Association with another, another professional rider, and I... During that first campaign, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to compete, but I felt it was important to still be relevant in the sport and be able to um, motivate my, my peers from other teams to kind of join, join this campaign. And so in 2013, I raced professionally. In the middle of the season, there was a very high-profile um, men's, men's race that was here in the U.S. and California, and they gave the women the opportunity to race one day and the men had seven days. And so during that race, they were, they were televising the women's race and the men's race was right after and the women's race was going on and they actually started the men's race simultaneously and they shut the women's race off and went straight to the men. And so that caused a media flurry. You know, there was a lot of talk about like what happened to the women, how could you do that? And that was the day, it was in May of 20, 2013 that, that changed my life because I, I was appalled and I said, you know, this, this has to stop. So that week I was still racing. I had a big race that next week. And, you know, I just went, I think I, I actually stopped training that week and just settled in and started working about working towards the WCA and working with this is going to be strategizing and formal, formalizing a plan. And, you know, I, I still continued to race a little bit through that time, but it was so much of a struggle. And, and through that, through the, the formation of the WCA, just like Pam was saying, uh, the governing bodies became angry. You know, I was, <laughs> I was outcast. You know, they, they were appalled that I would even bring this to the media and start talking about action items and how to change. You know, men's cycling has been in Europe for hundreds of years, and it's all been pretty much white males. And so the, the thought of having women involved in director roles, having women involved in race director roles was just out of, out of the ordinary. It was not going to happen. They were threatened. And so, you know, at that point, I didn't care. I was like, it's, this is time. This has to change. And so the formation of the WCA happened very much like the WTA. Um, so, you know, we went into a hotel. We sat down for hours and started 
started really digging into what the challenges were and how we were going to change it and not wait for other people to do it for us. And so through that, it's been, it's been a tough couple of years, but there have been positive advancements. I can say that it has changed since 2013 and it's not where we want it to be, but it's, you know, I, I feel like that's going to be a constant battle and I'm totally willing to take that on because it's, it's until it's, until we are where we need to be, I'm not really willing to stop. And I don't care who it makes mad. <laughs> Yay. Yay for you. Um, okay, let's actually uh, take a teeny bit of time here uh, and have each of you describe your organization um, a, a bit. Uh, Pam, I'm going to ask you to go first and uh, include how people might get onto websites or Facebooks. How, how would people actually find out more about your organization if they're interested in this um, after the program's over? So tell us about, I guess it's Women Can. Is that right, um, uh, Pam? Tell us more about the details of your yeah, organization. It's um, Women Can International. However, to put in the context, um, it is it is a virtual organization. It's not an official nonprofit. So we're just more of a virtual organization of like-minded men and women around the world, you know, working to achieve our, our Olympic dream and in inclusion and also gender equality. But the, the vision was originally with Sheila Kuyper from Canada. And in 1995, that's when Canada, they were the first country to have women's canoe events at the national level, and that was uh, part of Sheila's lobbying. And when Toronto was going up against Beijing for the Olympics, she had this campaign called Power and Grace for 2008, and her, her also, I'm not sure if it was a, an official nonprofit, but Women Can, and that was part of the Let's Get Sprint Canoe into the Olympics, and Toronto was committed to making that happen. And that was my first um, exposure to that. When we started working together in 2002, um, she, Heather McNeese, and, and I went to Sevilla, Spain, and to the, to the International Canoe Federation World Championships, and it was also their biannual congress. That was the first major lobbying opportunity, but that's when I... This started learning more about slalom, which is the white water, our other discipline. There are two disciplines in our sport, sprint flat water and slalom, white water. Then the sub-disciplines are canoe and kayak. And I started learning, doing more research about the issues in slalom. And that was when um, I had and, and talked with her about we, we really need to expand the vision and make this a Women Can International, make this a unified Sisters of the Single Blade vision for Sprint and Slalom. And from that point forward, that's when I sort of um, took the ball and um, myself and just sort of, like, you know, I created the website and now it's womencanintl.com. And it's just a, I make sure that we're always showing side by side that as Sisters of the Single Blade, we, we're going at this together. And um, I'm just, so fortunate that really this is just a collection of people, just everyday people and people in leadership positions and in grassroots, coaches, parents who are part of raising a level of awareness and education that this is an issue, but also getting getting connected to people who, who are in positions of influence and decision making to help change the rules and help change the culture. Even if the rules are changed, we still have this cultural issue that we had this long-standing myth that, it, that canoeing will damage your reproductive organs and cause, in, 
calls infertility similar to the issues with cycling. And this is not just a, a, a Western uh, Western society issue. This is a really issue globally for women that, that they're barred from competing, just barred from participating in physical activity. And this is just a symptom. I, I just learned over time that we're just merely a symptom of larger society issues where women are just not permitted to, to be in empowering positions like in you know, be, competing physically or even just in positions of leadership. And sport is 100% male executive committee, 90% male on the, on the board of directors. So um, just structurally, um, but, but thankfully over time with this organization, we are just a collection of like-minded people scattered throughout our sport but also outside our sport in other advocacy organizations who are, we get our story in their conversation, and then they take that story to the table, to other organizations. So we're trying to just perpetuate the story and get Canoe into the conversation, whereas previously we weren't, because like you, like you stated previously, there's Canoe and Kayak, so people automatically assume that we don't have a women's issue because there's Kayak, which is a double blade with a single blade discipline. So um, I'm just very thankful for this. I'm thankful for social media. I'm thankful for the Internet. Let's put it that way. I, I hope that people that are listening are getting the the full picture in case a person hasn't been involved in advocacy um, a great deal before, that it's not all victories. Uh, I know that the... Canoe people uh, had a very great tagline ready for Rio because at one point they were hoping to be able to get the changes so that there would be a canoe event in Rio, but that did not happen. And so, uh, but that doesn't mean you stop; you just keep going. Uh, we're going to take our break here, um, Robin. You're going to have. We'll, I'm, I'm interested. You'll get the chance to talk about your organization when we come back. Um, when we turn, we're, when we return, we're going to be taking a good hard look at the positive strides that these. Ab- advocacy um, efforts are having. So um, we'll be coming back to Women in Sport, The Long Road Up. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. Are you ready for a health, life, and empowerment show in one? Then be sure to listen every week for Living Well with Ann Beal. Ann takes her long-running TV show to the Internet Talk Radio Airwaves with guest experts and insight designed to help you live a healthy and successful life. By hearing from the experts and those who have found success, our goal is that you too will be motivated to do the same. Living Well with Ann Beal can be heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Thank you. 
You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back to Voice America, the Empowerment Channel. We're speaking with Robin Farina and Pam Boltler about uh, efforts in the canoe and uh, cycling road race uh, arena. Uh, Robin, tell us, uh, tell us about your organization and how it's structured and the kind of projects that you're involved in right now. Sure. The Women's Cycling Association um, came about in 2013. It was first off started with a group of professional women cyclists that were addressing the inequality issues that we were facing on a daily basis. Um, we brought in Donna Lupiano, who is a, um, I would say, probably one of the, the most brilliant people in women's sports around to kind of guide us and help us with our with our strategic plan. And she she really provided us with the structure we needed to move forward and, and take action. And so, you know, at that time, in 2013, there were a lot of things happening that was clear that women's cycling was low on the totem pole. It wasn't being um, considered important by our governing bodies, by the, I- the IOC. It was, uh, it was taking a back seat to the men. And so uh, this small group of professional cyclists came together. We dedicated a lot of time and energy and, and really decided what we were going to go after. And, at, you know, at the end of those meetings, we decided that we needed to address uh, media that we wanted, we needed more media coverage, and that media coverage would allow us to be seen in in households all over the world. So, without without any media coverage, you're basically you're, there's no one to tell your story to. There's no way. There's no outlet. And so, media coverage means you know magazine articles, online stories. You know, most of the cycling media outlets out there weren't covering women cycling. So, we did a really hard push to get in online streaming of our, our World Cups, which are like the, the most high-profile races in the world, live stream, so people could actually become fans of professional women cycling. So that was one of our, our top um, goals, along with just purse, purse equality. You know, we were showing up at all these races, and, and the purses, the prize purses were greatly you know, greatly different. And, and so that was always one of those things where, you know, how can we be professionals if we're not able to make a living? And so that was one of our priorities. And then, you know, also just increasing the, the number of women in leadership roles within the governing bodies and, and within team management. So that was kind of a small picture for professional women cycling that we we're working on. And then we actually worked on the grassroots side. And so now we have an organization that's a 501c3, it's a foundation, and we have a 501c6, which is a professional association of the Women's Cycling Association. And the grassroots side is more spreading the word about how to get girls into, into cycling at a young age, how to get women riding a bike for health reasons and become supporters of women's cycling. So it's grown, it's grown organically just because now that we have the professional side actually getting the coverage and people interested in riding a bike, we needed the more grassroots side, and so it's been a, it's been a lot of fun to see it grow. It, it still has a long way to go. I think you know women are still taking a backseat when it comes to number of of events that we can participate in. It's we're still taking a backseat in the numbers of 
how we can actually make a limit a living. There's most professional women out there are still juggling part time jobs. They're not really able to give it a hundred percent. So if they did want to go to the Olympics or if they did want to really pursue professional cycling, it's still been a, a tough road. And so you know every day we look at how we can make small steps in order to to really reach our big goals. And and you know that's I think. Every time we race, every time a, a new promoter picks, it up, picks women cycling up and decides to do a live stream, you know, we're gaining momentum. And, and really, through our website, womencyclingassociation.com, you can join as a member. So we have a membership that you can join if you are a licensed racer or you can join as a supporter. And a supporter can be anyone, anyone who just wants to help, to help promote our goal. And that's getting more women on bikes. That's getting more women and girls the opportunity to to compete or even just enjoy the sport of cycling. So I would encourage you all to go to our website, womencyclingassociation.com, join as a member, and, and, you know, jump on a bike and see if it's for you as a sport. It's a lifetime sport. We're trying to promote it as such. I think it's uh, interesting that for both of you and your sports, um, you've already mentioned how uh, the nature of your sport plays into some misconceptions and stereotypes. As you're going out into the communities and trying to um, encourage girls and women to take up this these two sports, which they may or may not um, have actually imagined for themselves before, what are the sort of like the strangest, the most bizarre um, misconceptions that you've heard people uh, express as uh, some of their doubts about whether they want to do this or not in regard to women in the high kneel position in the canoe and then also, you know, with the cycling. So, um, Pam, how about you go first? What are some of the strange stories that you've heard about why women maybe do not want to do this um, uh, canoeing thing? I think um, probably the what I think about most is why people don't let women and girls do it. And um, we have a, a, a page on our website called Myths versus Facts, and you'll find some of the fun ones. And I think the, the funnest and one of the most frustrating ones was that it will damage our reproductive organs, causing infertility and credit development. And basically the same story that's been said about women and, and most sports in the Olympic program. And what we've discovered and part of what we do in our advocacy work is that we get stories, we get reports from athletes, parents, or coaches that something like this is happening. And we help them either go through a process, we, edu- we provide education, um, we go to organizations like Women's Sport International or Women's Sport Sports Foundation or other advocacy organizations, the, the IOC, Medical Committee, we, we get information to help educate and dispel the myths. So our website is really dedicated to showing what is commonly said about women that, that this, these physical issues, but also that we're not good enough, they're not, we're not, they're not enough of you. But really, we've, we've seen that so many women and girls want to do this but because it's not in the Olympics, it's not the Olympic path, it was so hard in the beginning to find a coach who was willing to let a girl get in the canoe because if you let a girl get in the canoe, that's going to take a canoe away from a boy. So we've had to get over that hurdle, and as we've gone through time, 
We, ha- we had to have ex- little, little things like getting events at the international level, which gives it credibility because national federations and local clubs won't do anything without the lead of an international federation, usually, unless you're Canada or the U.S. or Brazil, which actually started from the grassroots and went up. That's kind of the started. So um, that's kind of that's kind of like the first thing that I was thinking of, that it's more women and girls want to do it and they're anxious to do it, and there are more girls and, and boys that are probably more apt to go more physically capable in canoe than they are in kayaks, but they're not allowed to do it because it's not in the Olympics. As soon as we get that Olympic switch flipped, which we hope is at the end of this year, it's not going to be a question anymore. Funding's going to open up for women and girls around the world, and we're going to have a different story at, at, at clubs around the world. I'd like to have each of you comment on some of the gains that you see happening in the near horizon. Uh, Pam, you're talking about this now. In the next four or five years, what are the things that you think reasonably could happen? And then we'll hear from Robin on this in just a moment. But uh, by 2020, what what sorts of things do you see might happen? And we expect a vote by the International Olympic Committee, hopefully by November of this year, to vote to approve the International Canoe Federation has proposed three women's canoe events for Tokyo 2020, and it's going to be a 50-50 program, so there may be equal number of events for men and women, first time ever. The IOC is supposed to vote on that. We also, um, at the world level, we're still stuck at two events for women, whereas eight for everybody else. So we're, we're hoping that by 2017 that they're going to increase the number of women's canoe events at the world level and at the continental level, the Americas is leap years ahead of all of the other continents right now as far as equality. We, want, we also want to see um, equal events at the continental games, um, which is another strategic issue. And because national federations are still, ma- majority of them still do not offer equal events um, at the national level. So it's really all triggered by this Olympic switch. Um, Robin, how, how are things looking for cycling, racing, uh, road well, racing? I definitely, I definitely think it's improving, but the main issue is that we still do not have equal opportunities for events as well. So really what what is going to happen for us is that the, the UCI, who is our international governing body, there's always been – the men have had – Organization. They've had different categories of racing. So you could be a world tour male pro, and then you'd have a continental pro team. But in the women, it's all just been one category. And so what we're seeing, in order to make it a more equal playing field, is have actually separation of, of categories. So there will be a women's world tour, which they've actually just started two years. Uh, we actually just, they created it two years ago, and now it's actually it. They are participating in the Women's World Tour, which was a huge leap, and that, that we're very proud of. But there's still so much, um, I guess, inequality within the, the categories. And so you can have a pro team that's super supported, very wealthy, and then you have teams that are, are barely scraping by. And so we're asking for basic guidelines to create the team. So we know if you're going to operate at, at a women's professional world tour level, you have to have a budget of X, Y, Z. And so we find that that's going to, that is super important for the, the UCI to actually mandate that. So that's one thing. And then, and then just equal 
not necessarily, so we've asked for equal distance, and that was one of those myths that, like, women can't do equal distance as men, which is completely untrue. We actually can. It's just that women's cycling is not as supported as men's cycling, so therefore we don't have the opportunity to train as as much as they do. So women aren't being paid a full salary, or so they can't give 100%. They're juggling part-time jobs, and, and so it takes away from the their training time. So we want to see more top events offering women's events, which which is happening at a slow rate. And I could see it by 2020 that every World Cup event has a women's event. And so that's what we're shooting for. That's what we're lobbying for. And I do see that on the horizon. I think that both of you and uh, your cohorts need to congratulate themselves for the efforts and uh, the successes that you've had. Um, we're running out of getting kind of low on time here, and we focused almost entirely on competition and participation. What about leadership? You've mentioned this, that it's uh, male-dominated for the most part, as many, many, many sport federations are. Um, what's the role that women play in the governance of your sport right now and then again, out in the near horizon. Pam, why don't you go first on this one? Um, women play a critical role, as, as they do in any sport. But what, what we're seeing is that there are a few women that are talking about this more within the International Canoe Federation, National Federations, are, are starting to train more women to be coaches. The International Canoe Federation has had um, coaching clinics and Slowly, you'll see one or two women included, like in Tunisia, there was one, um, one new coach that just got certified at the, at the base level. But we are seeing the need for more men that are in the current leadership position to mentor more women to help prepare them to take on these leadership roles, either as part of the International Federation, as part of the National Federation, as a coach or even as a leader in a, in a club. So the need for mentoring is, is to help with that preparation process is probably um, most needed. And, and just to put women out there, just get, get women on the docket and up for a vote. There is an election this year. So we're uh, hoping that more Pam's, women will, will... Sorry, I have to break in on you. i got to give a Robin quick last statement, and then we're, we have to move off. But um, how about, Robin, what's what's your thought about uh, cycling? Yeah, that's the same situation. As same situation? I, I think once the, once the riders retire, there traditionally hasn't been anywhere for them to go. And now you're seeing them jump into management positions of teams. There are more coaching opportunities than there ever has been. And really, what we, what we want to see is more women at, in the decision-making positions at the UCI, which is our international governing body. We've had our first woman VP uh, elected two years ago. And so I think that, that they're finally um, understanding that they've got to listen to the women. It's that happening. Have changed. Yeah. And so that's, that's what we've seen, and I think it's only going to grow in the next couple of years. Very good. Thanks, everyone. And join us again, same time, same station next week for Women in Sport, The Long Road Up. Thank you for listening to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Please join Carol Oglesby for another edition next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have an amazing week.